Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. And welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So, in this episode, I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down and having a fantastic conversation with Professor James Kingsland, OBE. So, James is a GP, he is a professor, he is an independent healthcare advisor, he holds an honorary appointment with the University of Central Lancaster, he has got a background in policy, in commissioning service redesign. He is a writer. He is a speaker. The list just goes on. I love this conversation. And as part of our best practice collaboration, James and I are both hosting theatres at Best Practice on the 11th and 12th of October. So in this conversation, James talks about the importance of succession planning and supporting the next generation to forward on his legacy. We talk about the history and the future of primary care networks. We discuss the importance of moving from positional leadership to more purposeful leadership. James also shares the importance of having like a solid professional and personal foundation for those of you thinking about taking on a portfolio career. Like many of us, James finds it very hard to say no, but his decision is aided by does it align to his skills, his values and by the passion of the ask. So I just absolutely loved it. I hope that you enjoy it. And as always, the only thing we ever ask of you is if you like it, it would be amazing if you could share it. Enjoy. Hey everyone, we are thrilled to announce that our very own Tara Humphrey from THC Primary Care and the Business of Healthcare podcast will be hosting the first ever live roundtable talk at Best Practice Birmingham on Thursday the 12th of October. Joining Tara will be Dr. Farah Jamil, Dr. Andy Foster and Dr. Hussain Gandhi aka Dr. Gandalf to discuss planning in an uncertain future covering PCNs, workforce and GP partnerships. To register for this year's event, please head to the show notes and click on the link. Now let's head back to this week's episode with Professor James Kingsland. Hi James, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? All good, Tara, and uh, thank you for the invitation. My pleasure, my pleasure. So I have got the pleasure and the privilege of interviewing some of the speakers and sponsors in the lead up to Best Practice Birmingham. I see that you are hosting the keynote theatre. Yes. And I also saw you in action at the PNE conference in Milton Keynes. Yes. What did you think? 
I really, really liked it. It was a different sort of event, but it was really, really good. And I need to get some tips actually on how do you prepare to host a theatre or are you such a pro you just rock up on the day? I used to say preparation always throws me. I mean, it's nice to be spontaneous, but yes, I think there's a blend between background, particularly those who you are going to be introducing, the subjects and being comfortable about interacting in the Q&A, because that's always the, the worrying bit, the hiatus at the end of the meeting where you go out to the audience and there's no hands go up. So a bit of preparation to make sure that you can start the dialogue and stimulate people to get involved. But I do like some spontaneity, and that possibly only comes, as you well know, with experience and doing it and making some mistakes. And I always like to bring a bit of humour into it because that makes it a bit more real. Definitely, definitely. Rather than say what you do, I did think, what would you like to be known for? Oh, a googly at the start. (laughs) I don't think there's one thing. You always revert to what's really important in the end, known to be a good husband, a good father, good fun, good to be with. But yes, in clinical practice, I'd like to think I've done a good job and still doing that, not least into my 40th year with the NHS now. I stepped down from clinical practice just about three years ago into almost a full-time portfolio of work, but I'd always been a portfolio GP. But going back to the question, possibly one of the best things I've done is at this stage of my career, setting up a programme that is looking into health inequalities, the extent to which the new architecture of the NHS can have an impact on local population groups who are disadvantaged. But the almost accumulation of the time, hopefully knowledge and some expertise into a project that probably has the potential to be the biggest impact in the work I've done in those 40 years, which some people say, why is it taking that long, James, to get to that point? So I don't think there's one thing, but it'd be nice to be known as everyone's a good person who did good things during the time that they were associated with the NHS, but did good things with their home and family as well. What made you stand down from clinical practice three years ago? How did you decide to do that? Well, I'd been in general practice for 31 years. And at an early stage, there was always a wish to do more than just the individual general practice work. So at an early stage, I did spread out into some policy work and setting up new organisations. I joined the National Association of Fund Holding Practices and then helped set up the National Association of Primary Care many years ago. So there was always things outside of practice But there's always a time to say when to move on. And after 31 years, it wasn't job finished. There's always unfinished business in in clinical practice. But was that the best way to use my time and efforts at that point in time? I always like to have long leading times as well to change. So there'd been a lot of planning. It wasn't a case of I've had enough time to go. It was coming up to the 30 year mark. The importance of succession planning in your practice allowing the next generation to take a practice forward in the way that they thought. So I'd been discussing and deciding on the right time to move on from clinical practice. So it was a well-planned, I think probably the right time as well. There was a whole range of things, but it was not that I'd had enough, certainly not. And sometimes you do reflect on the loss of that inter- that personalised interaction with people who you'd known for, for many years in your registered list. But it was about the right time on your own terms with good succession planning and leaving the right, it's a bit pretentious to say legacy, but the right legacy within your practice when there's a time to move on because we've all got to finish at some stage. You sure do. So you hold quite a few roles now. Could you share some of those? 
Well, having stepped down from clinical practice, I had been appointed as a clinical professor three years before finishing, and I wanted to maintain that focus on education and training. So I still have an honorary position, a clinical professorship in the School of Medicine at the University of Central Lancashire, which does some undergraduate teaching from time to time. But the link allows me to have an academic institution from which I'm doing some of my evaluative or research work. The main research work is linked to a programme called the Complete Care Community Programme. I came up with that title or a similar title in 1992. So it's taken a long time to come to fruition. So there's nothing new, but it was building on some work that I'd done to develop a programme called the Primary Care Home which sat in the National Association of Primary Care, but I designed that with a colleague. And it was almost utilising that piece of work to look at the most complex areas of care. So the link between an academic institution and the ability to do some research with what we're calling demonstrator sites all over England that is looking at the extent to which particularly primary care networks can have an impact on reducing local health inequalities. And the difficult question is, why have we continually failed to reduce the health inequalities gap in England over the years? Because there's some fantastic people done some fantastic work addressing complex care needs, health inequalities over many years. But if we accept the evidence and the indicators around some of the big ticket issues around life expectancy stalled in the UK for the first time in 150 years, the social gradient seems to be getting steeper. We're now talking about all sorts of other deprivation, whether it be rural deprivation, coastal deprivation, fuel deprivation, as well as all the other issues that challenge societies, lack of shelter, complex care needs. And why have we not been able to do something about that in a consistent way? So we're researching that through these demonstrator sites. A few years ago as well, there was a sense with the burgeoning online, and this was before COVID, online consultations and online services, the digitalization of healthcare. The sector that was probably racing ahead was the independent sector. I was challenged to, could we connect the independent sector, those who were already providing online services? So we've set up something called the Digital Clinical Excellence Forum, looking at quality standards in the independent sector for online providers. So we're working with all the regulators, GPHC and CQC, GMC, MHRA, all sorts of professional bodies and regulators to see if we can produce some best practice guidance for online consultations. There's other stuff that I'm still doing as well. I've been working for the BBC for, gosh, 22 years now. So I still do my radio show on a Monday night and amongst other stuff. So yeah, there's a, a wide portfolio. Hence, having stepped down from clinical practice, it still feels like a full-time workload at the moment. Do you think you're busier now or is it a different sort of busy? It's a different sort of busy. There's an intensity that comes with online work. But what you started to realise was that you do seem to shoehorn, you can shoehorn in all sorts of stuff. The time to reflect, the time to write, which I sometimes did when I was travelling. So did a lot of work in in London over the years. I didn't realise how important the train journey was until you haven't got it anymore, where you could probably do some writing, reflection, get some sleep occasionally. I think the style of my work has changed quite dramatically and a significant amount now is online. And that sometimes can be quite exhausting. I'm sure you find yourself tired when you're from meeting to meeting to meeting and you don't, you don't build in the reflection time or even build in time to say, I want to do a bit of writing. 
or collecting my thoughts and putting them down to paper as opposed to the fact we do lots of meetings. So there's a, a different style, a different type of intensity from the intensity of a Monday morning general practice surgery to a Monday morning with five online meetings. It's tiring in a different way, intense in a different way, but it's still very full. And sometimes, you, you know, the week goes by and you think, gosh, I've done nothing else than sit in this chair all week sometimes. How do you decide what you're going to say yes to and what you're going to say no to? Because I'm sure you're inundated with, can you speak? Can you do this? Can I pick your brains? What's the framework you go through to decide I'm going to speak to Tara or I'll say thank you, but no. Well, that's Tara where I was going to come for some coaching from you because <laughs> I, I need to go on the, on the course how to say no. I find it very difficult to say no. If people are interested and they ask you to do something and it is aligned with some of the work that I've, I've just outlined, it's very difficult to say, no, I can't do it. I always find it very difficult to deny in other enthusiasts who want to have a chat. Having said that, within the timeframes you've got, my first criteria, is it consistent with my skill set and the work I'm doing? Because you are asked to do things that are sometimes outside of the remit. And it's certainly aligned with that rather than what recompense you're getting for. I'm often accused saying some colleagues say you're doing it all for free. Why do you do it? Well, it's driven by the enthusiasm, the sort of unfinished business, and there's still work to do. And if it's aligned with where I've got some skill, expertise, interest, and it's exciting. I meet with some fabulous people. And whilst you hear about the stresses and tensions, and, and I do recognise that and I experienced it personally in the NHS, to find those who have still got energy, enthusiasm, the spirit to make change, take on new projects, keeps me going. And to a point, that's why I say yes more often than no. The no is usually if it's if it's more commercial, if it's outside of my skill set, or yes, if the diary is full then it's got to be a no. But if there's a space and somebody's asking, they're an enthusiast and it, it links in with what I'm, I think I'm good at, then I, I usually default to yes. So it's interesting you say if it's commercial, you're more likely to say no. Why? Well, when I say commercial, it's something that, you know, can you do a particular piece of work for this cost? And that piece of work doesn't link in with my skill set. It's a big fee. That's where I can say, I feel comfortable saying no to that because the reason I would be doing it would be for the fee rather than the content. And it's that sort of side of things where if the content doesn't link in, it's always nice to have a fee, but it's not fee driven. I guess it's in that privileged position now at a time of career where you don't have to do things because of the fee. And I recognise, you know, with some of the difficulties that colleagues in the health service are having because they haven't got enough income as a hardworking nurse or a junior doctor or a paramedic or, or others who are really struggling. But I'm more privileged to be able to say, well, I'm doing it for the interest and the fact that, that I can rather than I need to. Everybody wants to learn how to say no. <laughs> yeah, I can say no, but I have great difficulty saying no to, as I was saying before, mm -hmm. colleagues who are enthusiastic. They might not have any fees for you and saying, could really do with your expertise, you being involved. Can you help us? I find it very difficult to say no. Much easier to say no to, you know, can you do this piece of work at this cost in this area, which you, you know, you may or may not have the skills, but it's easier to say no to those. Hi, everyone. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Best Practice, where we will be interviewing some of the speakers and sponsors attending the event in Birmingham on the 11th and 12th of October. If you are already registered to attend, do let us know as we would love to meet you. And if you are still to register your place, please click on the link in the show notes. 
Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. So you mentioned some of the pieces of work that you've been involved in have taken a really long time to come to fruition. So in my day-to-day work, I support primary care networks. And at the time of recording, there is many networks are concerned and worried about what the future holds. What's going to happen to primary care networks after 23, 24? So what's their next contract going to say? But we know there is history. Things take a long, long time. And in many respects, some primary care networks are just getting started. So what would you say to those of us working down on the ground in primary care networks, when you think about your experience of facilitating change, when it feels uncertain, it may not be uncertain to people you know, at the top, but us down on the ground are looking up thinking, what do we do? What big decisions do we make when we don't know 100% what the funding and what the ask is going to be moving forwards? Really important. And what I'm going to say might sound superficially controversial, but it does have a deep reasoning behind it. And it's born from both personal experience and the opportunities to have wider experience, you know, working as a policy advisor and working more widely in the NHS. But the purpose of primary care networks, I think, and I think their longevity goes back to the original idea and what they were constructed to do. And my words, but The principles of bringing the networking arrangements together were born in the primary care home. Primary care home was described in 2015, the original paper written by myself and one of my colleagues, Nav Charna. But that paper itself and the term wasn't new. It was building on at least 25 years of experience, reviews and research into what was the best way of delivering list-based practice, i.e., services to a registered population, because that is one of the cornerstones of the NHS, registering for care with a unit called the general practice for the continuum, the long-term and the holistic approach in a community setting. So it was always based on list-based practice and what could you best deliver and at what size. And the knowledge that everybody walking through a general practice door needs care but they don't need a general practitioner. So I still struggle with the fact we haven't got enough GPs when you say, well, we haven't really analysed the need of populations, which says that a minimum of 25% of people going in do not need a GP. Some research would say at least half of people who go to their general practice as the first port of call in a GP, they need another type of health or care professional. It might be a social worker. It might be one of the ARS type funded roles but it may be a third sector. It may be a whole range of people. So team-based care based around the registered list was always vital. And I don't believe there's a future for the general practitioner partnership with nursing and administrative colleagues trying to provide everything to a registered list. The networks were to bring that together so you could have a multi-professional team, which involved all sorts of health workers, social care workers, third sector, and ultimately bind them into a one cohesive team. Now, whether that needed an organisational structure behind it, but that sort of starts to change the nature of what networks might be in the future, an entity with a registered list, with primary care physicians, core GPs who may still be independent contractors, but part of a much bigger multi-professional team. So the, the principles of the primary care home and then what NHS England adopted into the primary care networks and what Claire Fuller has now described in neighbourhood teams was a very long process. It's not a moment in time. So what you're saying, Tor, about the future of primary care networks is do they mature along that line 
or do they remain in the large loose associations between general practices and the general practice is still about a partnership of GPs with the practice nurse and an administrative team, the reception, and then adding on people through an ARS type of role doesn't seem to be something for the future. And if history tells us anything, if it doesn't mature, then it will change the 10-yearly cycle that we have. We've had a complete restructuring of the NHS. The macro system now is the ICS, the ICB, the meso system, which is a bit sort of fluid and we've got the place-based care, and the micro system, the primary care networks, is the new architecture. I think it's a good construct, and if it matures, it might survive. All the evidence in history says that you know it will change at some stage in the future. But what have primary care networks got to mature the outlook of saying, can we as an entity start to deliver an extended range of services to the registered population through team-based care? And the idea of being that you would start at that 30 to 50,000 population size, which you're looking at the person who described that. I described it based on information about workload characteristics based on five CCGs in 2015. So whether 30 to 50,000 is the right size now or not, and some are bigger than that and some are smaller, but it was saying it was a good place to start for certain reasons, that there was a workload generated by a 30 to 50,000 population in health and social care, which a certain number of people modelling a team could manage. And team-based care, there's a lot of information about functional teams and the size of which can deliver as a team. And the information I I got about team-based care was largely based on the military, retail, industry, a bit in health, a bit in social anthropology. People often quote something I first said about, but Robin Dunbar from Oxford University first described something called the Dunbar number. But that was based on social anthropology about the number of people who can have stable, not professional relationships, but personal relationships, and the sort of cognitive level at which we can interact as one team. And it's somewhere between 100 to 200 people. It may be a bit more. There's lots of debate about, but it's not 500 people. It's not the size of a hospital. The construct of the primary care network needs to reflect on where it all came from. And its future, I think, because of Goddard Edwards Demings, every system's perfectly designed to get the results it gets. So if primary care networks are failing or not recognising why they're working in a particular construct, then you've got to go back to the design. And the design was in the primary care home. And it's about team-based care, the size at which you can have a stable team. And there's one other big feature is that you take on some budgetary, albeit indicative budgetary control at that level once you've matured your entity. Does that make any sense? I think so. Do you (laughs) think primary care networks are failing? No, I think there's the variance that you would expect as primary care networks formed from the construct of the primary care home those who were primary care homes who've still got that sort of outlook and get it and say, this is right for us, I think are the ones that are probably moving forward. Those who are doing something different, because when I was going out in 2015, 2016, talking about the primary care home, there was lots of colleagues said, interesting, James, but we're doing it a different way and it's working for us. And then was, God's sake, don't change. You've said the magic word. If you can prove it's working, and it might have been a bigger size saying, our GP federation covering 150,000 people is working for us. I wasn't saying the construct or the size of the primary care home was the right size. If you said that's the right size for us and the right way to take things forward, the primary care home was never meant to be the panacea. And we often struggle with this thing, the paradox of we don't want a one size fits all approach to delivering care to the diverse population we have in the UK now. 
from the 1st of July, you're all going to be in a primary care network of 30,000, 50,000 with the same contract. But we don't want a one-size-fits-all approach. And that's the thing I think some primary care networks are struggling with because some have been formed where they were saying, well, we were doing it a different way or we had a different idea or we're not quite sure why we've been put into this construct. And others are saying, yeah, this is what we thought we would take for. We've been taking it forward from, I think we had best part of 300 sites called themselves primary care homes. It was covering nearly 20% of the population of England. And they got it and they were saying this vehicle is right for us. But others were doing it differently and saying, we don't want that construct, we want a different construct. But they've been told, no, you've got to do it the one way in the construct. I understand that the reasons why we've got to have some consistency, but I think those who still say, I don't get why we're having to work in this primary care network are the ones who are probably going to struggle more because it doesn't align with what they were probably thinking about a future for their general practices or their primary care system. There are some networks that they haven't changed the construct, but they are doing something different within the construct. So they're taking the primary care network funding and the roles, but they are working in a way that it works for them compared to their neighbour, which is just looking at the DES and looking at the roles going, we need so many of them to be able to deliver, you know, like those three lines of what the DES says. Whereas others are saying, I kind of get the concept, I may flex a little bit (laughs) and push against the boundaries to do something which is meaningful for us. And those networks are, you know, like making the best of an interesting situation. Yes. And that sort of difficulty links back to something that was coined many years ago, but it's still really important to understand the nature of commissioning for outcomes. Because one is probably saying, well, we've got a budget. And we think we know what's best for our registered population. You know, we've done the analytics, you know, the population health segmentation and risk profiling, and we think we know what to do. And it doesn't align with a nationally prescribed contract. So we'll take the resource and design something based on what we think is going to be the best outcome for our population. And if we extend that to where we should be is challenging a primary care network with larger indicative budgets that say, here's the resource utilization of your network. These are some of the national things that are challenging us and what outcomes can you deliver by giving you a resource where others are spending all sorts of time getting small aliquots of money, being performance managed to respond to a DES or a LES or a bit of a contract. That transactional, contractually driven approach to healthcare is something I'm absolutely against. We hold systems to account. We hold to account for better outcomes of care, but we've got to trust to a point the teams that are doing the work to utilize budgets better. But then we've got to give them some knowledge of the budgetary utilization, the resources that are available to them, hold them to account for utilizing it, but saying, and we need some outcomes, but we're not going to micromanage it. And we're not going to do it through a detailed contractual. We're just going to say, here's the resources that you use anyway. Here's the outcomes that we need. Go ahead and get on with it. And I think we've got to a stage where there'd be some of the clinical teams or health and care teams going, oh my word, where do on earth we start? Others would be going, at last, we're free from the micro transactional aspects of delivering care. And we have got, I think we lock too much resource, time and effort in transactions. And those transactions relate to an understandable request from government politicians through to NHS England about we've got to know if we're getting best value. But I think sometimes we lose that by saying the only way we can get best value is, you know, jump through this hoop for this amount of money 
time limited and see if you've got an outcome is the reason I think sometimes we're failing at producing better care as opposed to commissioning for outcomes, which has been around for a long time, but we've never really trusted the system to say, here's a resource, here's the outcomes, how you deliver it is up to you. So I think what you've described is a primary care network who would be attuned to that sort of approach and others who are saying, oh, mm, that sounds a bit too nebulous and too flexible. You know, we'd, we'd rather just deliver. You know, we know we're going to get that amount of money for delivering that piece of, bit of the contract in this sort of time limit. But my feeling is, is that approach is sterilizing and doesn't allow for that entrepreneurialism within healthcare that says, oh, something's just changed here. Something's moved in our community and we've got to be flexible to deliver against that. I think we might even be better to deliver even the access issues by saying what we need is better access to the general practitioner. Here's the resource that we've got to do it. How are you going to do it? But what we want to know is in a year's time when we come back, we're not hearing the same problem of you've got three weeks to see a GP or we can't get this or you've got the eight o'clock bun fight. We just need to know you've moved away from that. How you deliver it, you should know your service and your business well. Here's the resource to do it. We want you to deliver it. I think you'd probably get as good a response and probably a more rapid movement to solving the problem than doing it by transactional and contractual delivered. You know, we don't want a one size fits all, but you're all going to have to get to this point on this date with this amount of resource. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. All you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the Gob for Good website at gobforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call, or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. What skills do you think our future healthcare leaders need based on that conversation? We need a blend and move away from leadership. And I know we always say it, but we end up reverting to positional leadership as opposed to leadership as a style of practice. The leadership that we need is that everybody interfacing with a patient or a person has leadership skills, how they lead the consultation to try and find a solution to that person's ills. So it's liberating the leadership in the vast majority rather than finding who's going to be the next CD of the primary care network. And I think we've got to take that into a way that starts to recognise that team-based care doesn't need one person at the top. Team-based care needs to recognise the skills and competencies of all within that team, all of whom have got leadership skills. Yes, there's got to be somebody to coordinate it and somebody to act as a responsible officer and somebody to coordinate the work. But that's not somebody who's in charge. And I think we always revert to who's in charge, who do we go through, and who do we hold to account? And people then go on leadership development as an individual positional rather than the purposeful leadership, which I know, Tara, you espouse and support around the numbers of people who are in the service who can all be leaders of their own clinical practice, their own day-to-day work. 
and could think differently if we give them some of the tools and competencies and build their confidence that, you know, you haven't got one leader in your organization. You've all got leadership roles to fulfill, even if it's that just how you lead when you close your door and you're with that person in need of care. How do you lead that to get a better outcome? And the skills of leadership can be translated into that sort of level of purposeful leadership rather than leaders programs. And it's always about who's in charge and who's at the top of the pyramid, as opposed to when we were first talking about the CD role in a primary care network, I was saying, let's have the most junior person to coordinate the issues that may need to be aggregated from primary care networks. So the reporting of a primary care network into the primary care network assembly, have a junior person who's empowered to take that information. You don't need a doctor to go and do that. And that would then put it into context of, yes, it's really important about the reporting, but somebody could start to take that role on who isn't senior or of a particular position. What do you think of that? I've seen some of your, your work only from afar, but it's about empowering people and bringing a style of practice that allows people to do their job better. I think in regards to primary care networks, I don't see why you need a clinical director and when I meet like a pharmacist that's a clinical director you know that's the first thing that they will say I'm a pharmacist I'm not a GP and those people really struggle to kind of say like I might not be a doctor but I do have the skills to facilitate this conversation and help drive you know like a decision and a resolution I think in a primary care network I don't think it needs to be a clinical director there is naturally a shared accountability. So I do think that it's very rare, unless there's a big conflict, people don't point at the CD when things go wrong. The board come together and kind of go, okay, this has happened. How are we going to resolve this? But I would say, I do think everybody does lead. You need it. You need lots of people to put their hand up and step forward and say, I will lead. I will be accountable for this. I will, to the best of my ability, own this piece and do what I said I was going to do and work with people. Very few people, and it's a broad brush statement, don't want to be accountable because the fear they make a mistake, they'll get it wrong. So I do think, can everybody be leaders without anybody being accountable? I'm always saying to people, I'm happy to be accountable. And I think people are like, oh, thank you. Touch wood. There's nothing been catastrophic that has happened. So I think everybody should be seen as leaders and everybody should be developed. And I was talking to a senior admin, that was her title, senior admin, and was saying, well, why don't you speak to your manager and let her know that you want to take on X, Y, and Z and that you're happy to step up and you're happy to do this. And she was like, can I? And I'm like, yeah, why not? You don't have to wait to be given the opportunity. You should just want to step forward, see something needs to be done, do it and just crack on. That's probably one of the most important things about leadership in positional sense. I was a senior partner for, gosh, 29 years. But a senior partner, my role was to be part of a team. But if somebody had to be responsible for something that went wrong, somebody's got to pick up the traumatic issues, then it reverts to that. It wasn't me being in charge of the team and telling them what to do. I was just one voice in many. But when something complex came into the business that somebody had to you know, be responsible for and ultimately be accountable, it was me. I saw that with, I was a non-exec director at a local hospital. We appointed a new chief executive of the hospital. And on day one, he got everyone together, stood up and he said, okay, how can I help? What do you want me to do? You're the chief executive, you've got to tell us something. And he went, no, I, I can't do anything without, you know, what are the issues? And I remember the, about the second week in post, one of the clinics was in trouble 
they were overloaded, somebody had gone off ill. So he went down to man the phone. So he became the receptionist for the clinic for the rest of the day. And that sort of thing, when they were really in need of leadership, somebody went, you know, an accountable. He, he didn't sort of sit in the office and try and sort it out. He just rolled his sleeves and went down. And that was what I think, some, as you were saying, somebody's ultimately got to be accountable. There's got to be some route to say, well, there's a, a complex problem. It's not the response of everybody. But the delivery in terms of leadership, the day-to-day delivery is teams. And in that, we all respect each other's roles or have responsibilities and all work as part of a, of a same organisation. When we were developing the primary care home, by about the second year, I was chairing a technical advisory group, which did involve people from the Department of Health and NHS England and regulators, talking about if the primary care home matured and it became an entity, what might that look like? Would it be an incorporated body? Would it be a partnership? One of the things that became very attractive was a mutual, where everybody in the team had the opportunity to be part owner. Not quite the John Lewis model, but that sort of the mutual approach that gave everybody a voice and a share in the in the profitability of, a, of an organisation, but had a say if they so chose. Um, sadly, we primary care networks, that sort of work went off. I don't know where it is now, but there was lots of different options that you might have for organisational forms. But the ones that were becoming attractive is where that everyone had a voice, everyone had an opportunity to be involved in the construct of the organisation, and everyone could, could enjoy some of the revenue from the organisation if it was successful. And I think that's the mutual type. And I'm sort of attracted by that for primary care networks in the future, where you still may, from a GP's point of view, a self-employed independent contractor, but within a team that says, well, that's your choice, but there's others who have got a role to play or even some responsibility in the organisation. So you've got a portfolio career and you've had that for quite a while. What tips would you give to somebody looking to manage and do more than one thing? Because it's quite a lot that you do. And there's only so many hours in the day. And a good example would be sometimes, and this goes back to a little bit of hierarchy, I will work with a clinical director, they're a GP, they're a clinical director, and they may also sit as a director in another organisation. And then being in one meeting with one hat on, or they've got two hats on in that meeting. So sometimes it may be a conflict of interest, might be being paid to do both things at the same time. It's the logistics of managing that portfolio of activity. Like what tips would you give to somebody that you're in one place, but it benefits you because of all of the other roles? The first, it's not a tip, but it's the ability to do it. And my wife isn't standing over my shoulder, but, you know, without the the stability and support of family, the ability to work unusual hours, be away from home would have been a non-starter. And, you know, relationships and families are are difficult. And if there's difficulties in there, I could see taking on a portfolio career where you're pulling different ways, making that worse. I was very lucky to have a a very stable arrangement from which I had the flexibility rather than just having, you know, where's my husband, my father today? Because having that portfolio requires a lot of flexibility and sometimes a lot of juggling. There's, first of all, is how stable you are in your business, your work. My partnership was always very supportive, as opposed to sometimes, you know, you you have tensions because you've been awarded or you've got a portfolio, but the partners as a GP aren't very comfortable with it. And working out if you're getting paid for that, does it go into the partnership? Does it go into? So there's, there's some structural things, absolute stability in your work and home. Without that, I don't think I'd have been able to do it. And then doing it is is building a, a skill set and recognizing that sometimes, as I was saying, a, a different type of pressure 
and you've got to do it for the right reasons. It's about the revenue following the things that you're, I'm always worried about using the word passionate. Passion comes in the home, but things that you you really care about, you want to, you know, you think is really important to career, the drive, the things that are going to make a difference. If it's being driven by revenue, I'm going to be a portfolio because I need different income. I'd be a bit wary of that as well. You may not be fulfilled under tensions. So mine was always that stable background in terms of work and home, driven by things that I thought were really important to deliver against. If that worked, then revenue came as a result of it. And then knowing exactly how that revenue was being shared out. When I see colleagues having difficulties, those are the features that are sometimes not in place to be able to take on a portfolio role. Often then you do another role, but your partners aren't happy with it, or your home isn't happy with it. Then you get into tensions and into arguments. Not really top tips, but certainly if you're thinking about doing it, environmental issues and work issues and the clear reason and purpose you're doing it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Hopefully I will get to see you at best practice. It can be really busy though, can't it? And everyone will want to speak to you. If you're staying overnight, there's always a chance for a modicum of libation in the, uh, <laughs> the aftermath of the day. I'll hunt you down and, and, and offer you a glass of something if we don't have a chance during the day. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Sorry, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you too. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review. I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram and on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in in the next episode.